Morning, everybody. Those are you who are new here. I'm Chris Dirks, and I'm the main teaching pastor here. So I started two weeks ago on this series, Is the Bible Really God's Word? And I told you last week that I was going to talk this week about, you know, some of the different laws in the Old Testament and why we, keep, you know, keep some and not others and some of the attacks people make on the Bible from that. But I'm going to put that off one more week because I think one of the biggest obstacles, the deeper I get into this, the more I look at this, I think one of the biggest obstacles to people really accepting this thing, Christians, and I'm talking to Christians now, not non-Christians. Non-Christians have all kinds of atheists. They have all their, their reasons for not believing this thing. But why more and more Christians today are becoming more and more liberal, and they're walking away from this book, and they're de-emphasizing this book, they're crossing out bits and pieces of this book. And I think that one of the big reasons for that is because they have a wrong picture of Jesus. And I keep coming back to this again and again, but I just feel like the Lord wants me to say it again. And they have, we have, in the Christian church, there's this slick package, there's this slick picture of Jesus that is being sold to thousands, and many Christians are buying it. And it's this idea that Jesus was just all about love and acceptance, and the Bible's all about rules, but Jesus wasn't about rules, and Jesus wasn't about do's and don'ts. Jesus was just all about love and acceptance, and he just loved to be around sinners, and he just loved to accept them, and sinners just felt really comfortable around Jesus. And so as a result of this picture of Jesus that is out there, that he didn't care about righteousness, that he cared more about, about accepting people and making them feel good about themselves in their sins, rather than, you know, God's law and righteousness and repentance, because there's this picture of Jesus, that picture of Jesus is much different than what we read and hear about God and his holiness. And so many Christians, I'm running into this more and more and more, are being taught they're being taught that it's actually legalistic to really get into this thing. It's actually legalistic and fundamentalist to get into this thing, to believe that it's all God's word, to want to obey it, and to preach it as righteousness and holiness. That's what a lot of Christians are believing today and being taught these days and, and listening to these days. And they think that Jesus was antagonistic towards that. So if you want to become, if you want to get back to the roots of true Christianity, if you want to get back to the roots of true Christianity, then, then you've got to go back to Jesus and you've got to go back to just loving and accepting everyone and don't talk about sin and just love and that's what we're supposed to do. And if you have that picture of, of Jesus in the Bible as the Bible is sort of the source of legalism and fundamentalism and Jesus is the source of love and acceptance and the two are kind of at odds with each other, then what many Christians are doing is they're leaving this now more and more and they're going to follow their picture of Jesus. Because they think that Jesus would have led us away from this thing. And so before we even talk anymore about laws or God's laws and stuff, we have to talk about Jesus. I just want to talk this morning, and we're just going to go through a whole bunch of stories. We're just going to skim and skip all over the Gospels today, and I just want to show you how Jesus interacted with sinners. We need to talk about Jesus and sinners. Because as long as you have a wrong picture of Jesus, you won't be able to really embrace this whole thing as God's word, and you won't be able to embrace next week's message when we talk about God's laws. So let's talk about Jesus and sinners. Now let's start with some truth because in every lie there is some measure of truth. Otherwise nobody would buy it. And so I want to talk about a couple of things that are true in that picture of Jesus. First of all, Jesus does love sinners. Thank God. Otherwise none of us would be loved here today. Jesus does love sinners. Romans 5 verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
while we were still sinners. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves sinners. That part's true. I'm not coming against that part. Jesus does love all sinners. Second part of this thing that is true is that Jesus did reach out to sinners while he was here on earth. That's true too. Jesus didn't ignore sinners. Jesus didn't try to stay away from sinners. He did get around sinners. So that part's true too. When, when, when elements of the church say we've got to reach out to sinners and, and sinners should want to come to our churches, that part is true. It's very true. And we see this all over the Gospels. Tax collectors, prostitutes, adulterers, uh, ordinary, regular, sinful people. They wanted to be around Jesus. Luke 15 Starting in verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners, and I could read you many passages like this, but the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay? And we'll see, you can find this in other places in the Gospels too. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus did, Jesus was around sinners. Jesus did love sinners. And we find in the rest of this passage, we find a parable that just shows Jesus' heart for sinners. And this, by the Holy Spirit, I pray, is going to touch each one of your hearts today like it did mine this week. So he told them a parable. This is Jesus' heart towards you. We're all sinners here. This is Jesus' heart towards you. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So that's from Jesus' mouth, okay? That's Jesus' heart. I'm not denying this part of it. And any of you who ever just wonders, I wonder if Jesus can ever accept me. I wonder if I've done something too bad for Jesus to deal with. I wonder if my secret sins are too shameful for Jesus to love me. And from Jesus' own mouth, he says, I go out and I find that lost sheep. And he does love us. And he does love sinners. And there is nothing too wicked or too shameful or too embarrassing or too bad that he can't forgive it and he can't draw you in and can't love you. All of that is true. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus did reach out for sinners. But here's the thing. Those first two points are only part of the truth. They're only part of the truth. And huge swaths of the church today are focusing only on part of the truth and they're missing out on another piece of the truth that is so important. If you don't have the whole thing, sometimes a partial truth is just as damaging as an absolute falsehood. And so there's this idea that, you know, again, so Jesus loves sinners, Jesus reached out to sheep, we preach that parable, that parable gets preached lots and lots and lots in churches in the West, and it should, that's good. But what it's being made into now is that Jesus just, he just loved being around sinners, and sinners just loved being around him, and Jesus just accepted them the way they were, and they felt comfortable around him in their sins, and the fact of the matter that is not true, there's actually a subtlety here that we have to look at, and we actually find it in this passage, and I'm going to show you in a whole bunch of other ones, but there's a subtlety here at work that I have to point out, and that is this, Jesus did not just love to be around sinners per se. He loved to be around sinners who were willing to repent. That is super important, and it's being left off, but it makes a huge difference. 
Because people in, the, in, in, our, in our rush to make Jesus into this picture of he was just super accepting, then of course we want to make the church that way. We want to make the church a place where any sinner can just come in and feel comfortable at any moment in their sins. And the thing you have to realize is Jesus did not just love to be around sinners. He loved to be around sinners who were willing to repent. And I want you to notice this in this parable, and then I'm going to show you a whole bunch of other ones. Luke 15, uh, verse 7. I'm going to underline it up there right now. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. I want you to notice here that heaven doesn't rejoice just over sinners being around Jesus. Jesus doesn't go, yay, there's a bunch of sinners in the church. What a good church. No. Jesus didn't get up in the morning and say, I love being around sinners. Heaven doesn't rejoice. There's a bunch of sinners around Jesus. Heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. And Jesus loves to be around sinners who are willing to, may, or about to, or are in the middle of repenting. That, those are the sinners that Jesus wants to be around because you can't live in sin and feel comfortable around Jesus. It's impossible. He's Yahweh, the creator of the universe, the Holy One of God. To be in His presence is to be is to be burned with the fire of righteousness and holiness. It's to be pierced with a sword of purity. That's what it's like to be around Jesus. To be around Jesus is not just, hey, I'm in adultery and Jesus loves me in my adultery. I love being around him. That's not the effect Jesus has on people. To look into Jesus' eyes is to be burned with holiness. To be touched by righteousness to the core of your being. Let me show you this in Scripture. And I could show you many, many, but I told you we're going to skip a bunch through the Gospels now and look at a bunch of interactions. I want to show you this one in Luke chapter 5. This is uh, the Apostle Peter, one of his first encounters with Jesus. Uh, this is before he becomes an official disciple of Jesus. That's going to happen, you know, the next chapter, sometime later. This is one of his first encounters. And just to give you a little, uh, a little background on what's happening here, uh, Jesus is teaching on the Sea of Galilee, and there's many, many people, and they're crushing against him, and they're crushing against him more and more. He's getting pushed into the water. Okay, and so eventually he has to get into a boat so he can teach all these thousands of people. So he looks around for a boat, and Simon Peter is there, and he's got a boat. And he says, Simon, I want to use your boat. And so he gets into Peter's boat, and then he pushes off from shore, and now he's going to teach the people. Okay, and then he teaches the people, and afterwards, after all the people are gone, he wants to bless Peter. He wants to say thank you to Peter. Okay, well, he wants to do more than that, as we're going to see in just a moment. Jesus always wants to do more than just what he's doing. But he, so he wants to bless him. And so he says, put your, put your nets down on the other side of the boat, okay? And Peter is going to get a little introduction into who Jesus is. All right, let's just read this. And let's see how Peter responds. Because my point here is that Jesus doesn't make sinners feel comfortable. So let's look at this, okay? Luke chapter 5, verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, this is Jesus, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, I just want to stop there for just one moment. I want you to notice here that Peter, Peter doesn't even fully know here who Jesus is. Okay, he's getting to know him. But I want you to notice right off the bat, Peter doesn't call Jesus by his first name. He doesn't call him buddy. He doesn't call him friend. He calls him master. That is like right from just getting to know Jesus. There is something about Jesus. You don't treat this person frivolously. He doesn't say, thanks, buddy. Hey, no problem. Glad to borrow you my boat. Jesus says, I want you to put your nets down. 
And Peter is like, well, we already did that. But he calls him master. You're the boss. He knows that much about Jesus already just from being around him. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Okay? Peter, put your nets on the other side. We already did that, but hey, you're the boss, master. Puts it down. The moment he does, these nets are filled to breaking with fish. Now this would have been worth a lot of money to Peter, but I want you to notice how he does not respond. He does not respond running over to Jesus and hugging him and saying, thanks, man. Let's go fishing more often together. Thanks so much. It's not what he does. Oh, oh, Jesus, you're a great guy to be around. Boy, do I love being around you. That's not what he does. One little encounter with Jesus, one little meeting with Jesus, and he, begin, and he gets one little introduction to Jesus, and the first thing that happens to him is he is cut to the heart by his own sinfulness. And in great fear, he throws himself at Jesus' knees and says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus did not make sinful people feel comfortable. He did not make regular, ordinary folk feel comfortable. And the true Jesus, now there's the Jesus that's being packaged out there to many people in the church today makes people feel comfortable. But the real Jesus doesn't make people feel comfortable. He doesn't make you and I feel comfortable in our sins. He is the Holy One of God. He is Yahweh. So again, this idea that sinners everywhere just love to be around Jesus is not quite accurate. Sinners who were willing to repent who wanted to repent of their ways and change and go away from their wickedness, they were drawn to something about Jesus. He often scared them. He often made them feel uncomfortable, but there was something so wonderful about him that they indeed were drawn to him. But sinners who wanted to just keep on living in their sin didn't want to be around Jesus. Mark chapter 5, 14 to 17, the people of Decapolis, of the Decapolis. Okay? And again, I'm just, we're just going to skip all over the Gospels here just a little bit today. Because, because Jesus, the real Jesus, is not at odds with God's law and holiness and righteousness as we see it in here. So anyway, Jesus is, is ministering to people in the area of the Decapolis, which was on the east side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was an area of about ten cities, and uh, that's why it's called the Decapolis. Anyway, he goes there, famous story. There's a guy, you know, loaded up with demons, and he's, and he's a danger to everybody around him. He's... A, he's crazy, and the people are afraid of him, and Jesus goes and delivers this man of his demons. And so the townspeople come out to see Jesus, and I want you to notice how they respond. The townspeople come out to see Jesus, and you would think, now how are they going to respond, right? I mean, according to the picture of Jesus that's out there today, they're going to come out and say, let's hang out. Wow, thanks for, thanks for healing this guy. He was a real danger in our area. Thanks for being so amazing, Jesus. Why don't you come back for supper? Why don't we have a big party in your honor because you're just this amazing guy that we love to be around. That's not how the townspeople react though. I want you to see how the townspeople react when they come out to see Jesus. Mark chapter 5, 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country and people came to see uh, what it was that had happened and they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. 
first encounter with Jesus, he just did something real nice for them. And what's the first thing these people feel? Hey, wait, wow, Jesus, nice to meet you. Big hugs. They were afraid. That's actually a common thing people experience when they see Jesus. They were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They get down on their knees. Thanks, Jesus, for healing this guy. Please leave right now. Could you please leave? Now, why? Why would they be afraid, and why would they ask him to leave when he just did something nice for them? I mean, clearly he's a man of God. Clearly there's power on him. Why would you be afraid, and why would you ask him to leave? It doesn't make any sense according to the packaged picture of Jesus that is being sold in North American Christianity today. The fact of the matter is that the people in the Decapolis knew something about Jesus in that one encounter with him, in that one introduction. They knew something about him that many Christians sitting in churches today don't know. And just from meeting him once, the real Jesus, they knew, taking one look at this man, they knew that if they invited him home, their lives would never be the same. They knew, somehow intuitively they knew, if this man comes home for us, we are not just going to, he is not going to let us just go back to living the way we've always lived. He's not going to let us go back to our comfortable lifestyle. He is going to demand something of us. And they were comfortable in their lifestyles. They were comfortable in life the way they had it. And they did not want to, they, did, they wanted to continue in their ignorance. They didn't want to be forced to make a decision for God. I'm going to be all in or I'm going to be all out. So they said, please leave. Please leave now. And the sad thing, sad and scary thing in this story is how Jesus responds. He doesn't call down judgment on them. That wasn't what his first coming was about. That's what he'll do at his second coming. But he doesn't call down judgment on them. He quietly gets in the boat and leaves. I mean, that is just so scary. That is just so sad. He doesn't force himself on them. We're not willing to repent. We're not willing to leave our ways. Please, please don't provoke us to have to make an all or nothing decision. Do you know how many, you know how many Christians, you know how many of us are like that? How many times in my life I'm like that? We, we want to kind of play in the middle where we can kind of play Christianity a little bit but, and, and, but still kind of feel like we're going to heaven because we're Christians and we're following God. So, but we just want to kind of walk in there and we don't really want to encounter the real Jesus. We don't really want to hear his voice because we're afraid if we hear his voice and he asks us to do some stuff we don't want to do and give up some stuff we don't want to give up, then we'll have to make an all or nothing choice of will I follow God or not and we won't be able to sit in the middle. Jesus always provokes a response, will I be for God or will I be against him? And these people feared that. So you say, well, whew, depressing. Are you saying, Chris, that all people who hung around Jesus all the time, everywhere he went, that they were just scared all the time and all that sort of stuff? No. Some people received Jesus with joy, but there's a reason they received him with joy. And this first story I want to just look at here is the story of Zacchaeus. Okay? Zacchaeus was, a, a, you know, I don't know, but he was a scoundrel. He was, he was rotten. Um, he, tax, he was a tax collector. Again, there's a famous story. And of course, I'm not against tax collectors today. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a big fan of them coming to my house all the time or anything, but not that they do, but... Um, 
But Zacchaeus was a tax collector. In our days, we don't get that because, I don't, is there even such a thing as a tax collector? I don't know. But anyway, but tax collectors in their days, totally different system than we have now, okay? Uh, the Roman Empire, the, their system was very corrupt. In order to collect taxes, they would ba- essentially auction off the right to tax a certain area. So you'd have a, you know, an auction for Steinbach an area, and the highest bidder, they would have all kinds of bids, the highest bidder who would pay the Roman Empire the most money would be the one who would get to be in charge of collecting the taxes. And then, and then of course, now a system like that only encourages corruption, because then what the tax collectors do is they would bid really high so that they could become the tax collector, and then, and then they would pay the Roman Empire, and then in order to make money now, they have to collect all the taxes, and whatever extra they get is theirs to keep. Okay, so these guys, I mean, this, this system was super corrupt, and these guys were cruel. They were the money lenders of their day. They, would, they, they were sort of like the banks of their day, but they were really cruel in the way they would lend money and at high percentage, you know, interest rates, and they were known to buy up food and then keep it until people were desperate for food and then sell it back to them for high rates. They were really cruel people, and they ruined a lot of families. And so the people hated tax collectors. They were hated, and, but the tax collectors were very wealthy, okay? And Zacchaeus is one of these men. Okay, so think about it. This is a bad person. We, you know, we sing, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and, and we don't realize Zacchaeus was a wee wicked little man, okay? <laughs> he was a bad person. So anyway, that's Zacchaeus. So, but somewhere in his heart, he's a sinner. Thank God, God loves sinners. But he wasn't just a sinner who wanted to keep going. Somewhere deep down in his heart, somewhere underneath it all, there was a seed of something. There was a seed of openness to God. There was a seed of, I w- I, I'd be willing to repent if someone showed me something. Not something he necessarily consciously thought through, but there was a seed of openness to God. And the reason we know there was a seed of openness is because when Jesus is coming to his town, he wants to see him. He's not like the people of Decapolis who want Jesus to go away. There's something in him, behind him, beneath all that sin, there's something in him, I gotta see Jesus. And that's the Holy Spirit. There's an openness there. Okay, so what happens? Well, it's a famous story. Let's read a bit of it, okay? Luke 19, verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, so he's walking by now, Zacchaeus is a wee little man, and he's up in the tree. So when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Okay, this is Jesus reaching out to people who are really sinful. But again, now I want you to notice what's going to happen next, because Jesus isn't reaching out to just any sinner. We have this idea, Jesus just loves sinners. Oh, there's a wicked Uh, you know, dishonest, cheating tax collector. I love hanging around with those guys. No, 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 no. Jesus is the son of God. He looks right to Zacchaeus' heart and he sees this guy doesn't want to be a dishonest, wicked tax collector anymore. He says, I'm coming to your house. Okay, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, Zacchaeus is joyful. The people of Decapolis were afraid and said, Jesus, get out of here. Zacchaeus is joyful. Yeah, come to my house. Why? Next verses, okay? Here we go, next verse. Verse 7, and when they, the people watching this scene, saw it, they all grumbled, so they're grumbling. Oh, he has gone to be in the, the guest of a man who is a sinner, but he's not just a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood, because look at what happens at, you know, as soon as he spends any time with Jesus. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's repentance. That's not just that's not just, oh, yeah, I think I'd like to be a Christian. I, I'm okay with going to church and, and being a relative. No, no, no. That's repentance. He has a meeting with Jesus. This is a wicked, dishonest person. And he goes from being wicked and dishonest, he has one meeting with Jesus. He's like, I, I can't keep going like this if I'm going to be around Jesus. 
So I give half my goods to the poor. Think of that. If he's worth $10 million, he just, boom, right there for the kingdom of God. We're going to give away $5 million right there. Boom, half of it. Half of it. I'm all in, Jesus. There's nothing I'm holding back. The people in the Decapolis, they're afraid. What is Jesus going to ask of us? Zacchaeus is like, take it all. Take it all. And if I have defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. Not one time. I'm not just going to go back and, oh, grudgingly give people back. I'm going to pay back four times. Now, the fact that he's going to pay back four times, that's not just some random number. I used to just think that was a random number he kind of came up with. But he's actually bringing himself in obedience to God's law because Exodus 22 verse 1 says, you steal four sheep, you, or you steal one sheep, you give four back. He's bring, that's what repentance looks like. He's bringing himself joyfully into obedience to God's laws. And it's not a sad thing. It might be a scary thing to give your life to God, but it's not a sad thing because the moment you do it, there's joy. Zacchaeus' heart is absolutely filled with joy because you can't, you can't get that kind of joy by holding back from God and disobedience and playing a game and just trying to be a Christian but enjoy the world at the same time. There's no joy in that. Then you're just afraid. You don't really want to hear Jesus. You would rather he not talk to you. But Zacchaeus has joy coursing through his veins because he did the scariest thing you can do. He just gave it all to Jesus. That's repentance. Those are the kinds of sinners Jesus loved to be around. Repentant sinners. And those are the only kinds of sinners that could stand to be around Jesus. Look what Jesus says next. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And some of you are sitting there going, you know, but wait a minute. Salvation has come to this house today. Zacchaeus never said a prayer, right? I mean, how could he be saved? He never asked Jesus into his heart, right? Well, the thing is, salvation is not about a prayer, and I'm not against a prayer. In fact, I led a guy who used to be an atheist in my office this week in a prayer to receive Christ. That was awesome. I mean, I love the prayer. I'm not against praying a prayer. But the sign of salvation is not that you prayed a prayer once. The sign of salvation is Zacchaeus says, it's all yours. Half of it I give right now to the poor. Do you want the other half, Jesus? And if I ripped anyone off, I'm going to give it back four times. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Those are the kinds of sinners Jesus liked to be around. He didn't just hang around with all the tax collectors. You know, the tax collectors who wanted to keep on living in dishonesty and greed and taking advantage of people, I'll tell you something right now, they didn't want to be around Jesus. We have this idea, oh, prostitutes love to be around Jesus. Yeah, prostitutes who were sick of prostituting and were willing to repent love to be around Jesus. But prostitutes who loved, who just wanted to be in that lifestyle, did not love to be around Jesus. Tax collectors who were around Jesus quickly became, you know, or dishonest tax collectors quickly became honest tax collectors. Prostitutes who were around Jesus quickly became ex-prostitutes. These are the kinds of sinners Jesus was around. Not just sinners, but repentant, willing to repent. Sinners. And this is so important for the Christian church to understand because of this wrong picture of Jesus, many Christians are trying to do the wrong thing. Many Christians and many churches today are trying to create an environment where any old sinner can just come in and feel good about themselves. That's actually not what the church is supposed to do. That's not what Jesus did. The goal of the church is not to become this loving, accepting place where anyone in any lifestyle can come and feel good right now, this moment. That's not what the church is supposed to do. 
The church should be a place that is full of love, yes, and reaches out to sinners, yes, and there should be something so kind of wonderful and fearful about it at the same time, but it draws people in who are open to God, and at the same time, it makes them feel loved, but at the same time brings a conviction and something so uncomfortable that it provokes a response in people towards God. That's what the church should do. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He drew people in who were at all open to God. There was something so wonderful about them. They came to him even though he frightened them at times. And they found him to be wonderful and they found him to be good, but they also found him to be profoundly righteous and holy, so much so that it provoked something in them. They had to repent if they wanted to stay there. And a person living in adultery, let's say, or, or sexual immorality or in dishonesty in their business should not be able to come to a church and just sit month after month after month and feel self-satisfied and at peace. They should feel like there is love there, but they should feel so uncomfortable that they either have to, have to leave for a while and maybe God brings them back later, or they have to turn against God, or they have to repent right now and I want to be right with God. That's how Jesus was. That's what he's calling of the church. We are his body. We are supposed to be like him. But the mistake many people are making today and that many churches are making today is that they think the forgiveness of sins is practically the only component of the gospel message. And the forgiveness of sins is awesome. I mean, thank Jesus for the forgiveness of sins or we'd all be be hooped. I didn't write that in my notes, but, but we'd all be done for. I mean, I love the forgiveness of sins, and the forgiveness of sins is a huge part of the gospel message, but the way it's being preached today is the forgiveness of sins is the gospel message. That isn't the gospel message. The gospel message is that the forgiveness of sins flows from God in response to something else, repentance. The forgiveness of sins is not just a truth that exists in a vacuum, and we just preach the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins, and people just think, well, I'm forgiven because that's what the gospel message is, forgiveness of sins. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is when you repent and turn to God, his forgiveness flows for everything and anything you've done. In response to repentance, repentance being not just a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, that's a great step, that's a great you know, thing to do, but repentance being exhibited by half my goods I give to the poor as a gift. I give it all to Jesus. I'll, whatever he wants, I'm going to make restitution. That's repentance. And that's why one of the primary components of Jesus' message throughout the Gospels is over and over and over again, repent. Matthew chapter 4, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew actually sums up in one sentence Jesus' basic message that he preached while on earth. Okay, so this isn't, I mean, it's not that he preached exactly these words every time he preached. Matthew is by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, summing up Jesus' basic message everywhere he went as he traveled and as he preached and he's ministered. We should pay a lot of attention. Okay, this is the core of Jesus' message. What's the core of Jesus' message? From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus did, the primary component of Jesus' message was not going around telling everybody, I accept you, come to me. Oh, you sinner, come on, come on, come on, let's hang out. That wasn't, that wasn't his message. His primary message was repent. Turn from your wicked deeds and turn to me. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the primary component of Jesus' message. That kind of sums it up as, as Matthew did there in the Holy Spirit. And this is why you say, well, what on earth does all this have to do with, we're in a Bible series and now you're going off on Jesus and repentance, okay? This has lots to do with the Bible series, okay? Because what does repentance look like? Repentance is outlined for us. How do you know what repentance is? Um, repentance is outlined for us in God's laws. 
We repent to this. We repent from being lawless. We repent from being the many things we are and dishonest and sexually immoral and angry and selfish. We repent from those things and we repent to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in relationship with Jesus. This is not apart from a relationship. We're not talking about legalism here. But in relationship with Jesus, we repent to what is defined as righteous living in here. Which is why when, if you really want to go back to true Christianity, you want to be like Jesus, you're not just going to become this sort of, you know, anti-establishment, anti-religion, accept all sinners type of church. What you're going to become is a church that preaches repentance and loves people and whoever is drawn to that message will want to be around. But Jesus was super intense. Jesus was super intense about his preaching uh, in his preaching on repentance. And uh, this is amazing to me. You know, it's, it's fascinating. When people will come to Jesus with all kinds of questions and all kinds of things that they want to talk about, and Jesus would, would, all, he would always bring it back to, what about you? So, they, you know, people would come to Jesus, and they'd be like, and, and I'm going to show you one right now in, in just a second here, Luke chapter 13. And people come to Jesus, and they're like, um, you know, Jesus, and they're talking about tragic events in the news. And they talk to him about, you know, some people died when a tower fell on them in Siloam, which is, you know, in, by Jerusalem. And, and they, uh, what was the other one they talked to him about? I'm just forgetting it here. Oh, and he talks about these Galileans. They come to Jesus and they say, there's this other event in the news, this tragic event in the news, that Pilate murdered a bunch of men from Galilee and mixed their blood with their sacrifices at the temple. So that's a pretty bad thing. And so they come to Jesus and they're talking to him about, you know, current events and tragic events in the news. And you wonder, well, what's Jesus going to say about these tragic events in the news? And it's amazing, a laser-like focus back to repentance, always to repentance. Jesus always bringing it back there. They want to talk to him about tragic events in the news, and Jesus is saying, how are, how are you at with God? Where are you at with God? Jesus, what about this tragic event I read about in the news over here? How are you with God? Jesus, what about this question over here? What about this question over here? How about where are you at with God? Where are you at in your obedience with God? He had a laser-like focus on repentance. Luke 13, there were some, and I'm just going to read you a few verses here, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent. They want to talk to him about something else. This isn't about us, Jesus. We're talking to you about events in the news. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's intense. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is Jesus' theology of everything. This is Jesus' theology of tragic events in the news. When you see a tragic event in the news, pray for the victims and then remember how short your life is and are you, are you ready to meet with God? Because unless you repent and follow him and obey him and walk with him, you will likewise perish. That's Jesus' theology. That's Jesus' theology of tragic events in the news. That's Jesus' theology of pretty much everything. Where are you at with God? Are you listening to him? Are you obeying him? Are you living a life of repentance? And again, this is, this is, this is good news. Zacchaeus had joy. This was not sad. You know, Zacchaeus repenting and giving everything to Jesus and responding to Jesus wasn't, you know, he was down in the dumps and he was depressed and he was discouraged now and it's like, um, oh man, now I have to give everything to Jesus. Who is happier, Zacchaeus or the people in the Decapolis who didn't want to repent? Zacchaeus was way happier. 
It's scary to repent. It's scary to open yourself up and say, Jesus, I will do whatever you want. I will give up whatever you want me to give up. It's scary to say that. It's scary to live a way of life like that where you're always doing that in your life. But in the end, that is the, that is the path of joy. It's the path of joy. The psalmist says this in Psalm 19, verse 78, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord. See, the law shows us what repentance looks like. When we, when we bring our lives into alignment with this as we're in relationship with Jesus, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You want a revived soul? You want a rejoiced heart? I don't know about you. I want those things. I want, a, I want a happy heart. I want a revived soul. You want a rejoicing of the heart? You bring your life into alignment with this. You study this. And you say, I'll do whatever it says. And not as a legalistic thing, but in relationship with Jesus. I'm going to listen to him and walk with him, and he's going to convict me and bring, and, and, and bring my life into alignment with that. And when I bring my life into alignment with his laws in relationship with him, my soul is revived. It's revived. You say, well... How does that look? There's so many different things and different things. You can't look at it like that. It's not that complicated. I'm gonna, we're going to talk lots about that next week. But, the, but let me just finish with this. If the basic gist is, I mean, the Ten Commandments broadly outline what a godly life looks like. Now, a lot of people, they look at that, they say, well, the Ten Commandments, uh, I don't get any life out of studying the Ten Commandments. I mean, do not murder. That's not that hard for most of us here, I hope. Um, you know, do not murder. I don't, have a, I don't have trouble with that, Chris. You know, I meditate on that one. It doesn't do anything for me, right? Well, what, the thing you have to realize is that the Ten Commandments, broad sketch, but in this book, then we find as we go by the Holy Spirit into this thing, we find that each of those, those commandments goes much, 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 much deeper, and they keep going deeper, and you'll never get to the bottom of them by the power of the Holy Spirit in your lifetime. Because you, then you read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 27, and this is what you read, that do not murder isn't just about do not murder, it's also about do not be angry. Oh, a bunch of us get nailed right there. And you go to another level, and the Lord just shows you there's a whole other level to this than just not killing people. There's also not calling somebody a fool in your anger. And you read that in Matthew 5 and you go, oh, and now he begins to convict you and you don't feel comfortable in it. You don't sit there and go, oh, I got a bit of an anger problem, but thank Jesus, I'm forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven and I'm just going to keep going the way I'm going. That is not what you do when you're close to Jesus. You read, do not be angry, and he brings conviction. He brings conviction of the impatience you show with your children. He brings conviction of the angry words you said to your spouse. He brings conviction about the anger you showed during that hockey game or, or, or whatever. Maybe I shouldn't name sports. Um, he, he brings conviction about anger and, you, and, and that conviction doesn't feel good and maybe you have to go back and make restitution. That doesn't feel good and that's embarrassing and there's pain and then there's the pain as he brings us conviction. There's the pain of you know, beginning to work through the process now of getting help and getting accountability and walking out of these bad habits and walking away from relationships and things and stuff that you got attached to but they were sinful stuff so he brings conviction. It's, it's not, that's not, doesn't feel good. But as you begin to walk this thing out in relationship with him, you find that holiness is one of the most wonderful rewards on planet earth. To live a holy life in relationship with Jesus is pure joy. 
And so you go through a period of pain as you begin to walk through and confront your own sinfulness in a, in a given area, but you begin to walk it through and over time the pain starts to subside and you start to walk in victory and on, and in, on the other side there in that victory, there is absolute life. Holiness is a wonderful place to be and that's what salvation looks like when you're walking with Jesus. He is moving you into holiness. And then you kind of get over your anger stuff and one day you're looking back and you're going, I don't get angry anymore that much and I don't ever want to go back to that place where I was angry. And then you start to kind of feel self-satisfied and you keep reading your Bible and you don't realize that this command goes even deeper than anger. There's do not murder and then there's, you know, actually means do not be angry and you begin to work on that and then one day you're reading like I did in my devotions this last week what I think is probably the scariest passage in the entire Bible. Can I read you the scariest passage in the entire Bible? It's got to be pretty scary. Scariest passage in the Bible. It's got to be, okay? This is what Jesus said. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I think that's a passage that should make every Christian tremble once or twice in their lifetime. See, it's not just about do not murder. It's not just about do not be angry. Jesus says, now let's talk about your words. He says, the things you say in secret that you think are secret, I'm there. The things you say behind people's backs that you think nobody's ever going to find out about and this isn't a problem and I can gossip and I can back talk and I can slander and I can say these different things because it's in secret and it's in hiding. Jesus says there's a day coming where everything you have said in secret, I'm going to blare from the rooftops and everybody's going to hear the shameful things that have come out of your mouth. That should cause every believer on earth to tremble a couple times in their lifetime. And you read a passage like that, it's not just about do not murder. It's not just about do not be angry. It's also about every word that you speak. And Jesus says in another place in the gospel, he said, on judgment day you will be judged for every idle word you speak. And you read those passages and the conviction of the Holy Spirit grips you and you say, oh Lord, I'm a sinful person. Please forgive me. And you go through this process again. This is what the Christian life is. But you find life in it as you bring your life into alignment with this book. That is walking with Jesus. He convicts you of sin and you repent of your deeds and you walk in relationship with him and then he begins to fill you with tremendous joy. And so preaching the Bible and is not different than what, you know, what Jesus would have wanted. Be, we, to become a true Jesus church is not to just become accepting of sin. It is to become loving but also to be seeking for repentance. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I want to just thank you for this truth and help us to remember this truth. And it's not just sinners you love to be around, it's repentant sinners. And Holy Spirit, I just pray for each one of us right now. Lord, I, I was doing this in my devotions all week. But I pray for each of us here today, Lord Jesus, is if there is one thing that you would show us one thing where we are not living for you, where we have not given it all to you. Lord, as, as a gift, as a present to us, would you show us each one thing we can begin to repent of, Lord, because we long to repent. We long to live in holiness and experience your spirit even closer. I just thank you, Jesus, for what you're gonna do. In your name we pray, amen.